0: Welcome to Special Briefing, where we dig into how states, cities and counties are faring since COVID-19 arrived, and how decisions made in Washington are impacting their response. We're brought to you by the Volcker Alliance and the University of Pennsylvania Institute for Urban Research. And now, please join Special Briefing.
1: Good morning, good afternoon for our listeners in Europe. Good evening if you're dialing in from Asia. This is Bill Glasgow from the Volcker Alliance. I'm here with my co-host Susan Walker of Penn Institute for Urban Research, and this is special briefing. Today's program is going to focus on COVID-19, of course, unemployment, and state and local fiscal consequences. As we'll find out today from our panel, the two are closely related, and uh, this is a this is a time of great news, uh, as you might expect new york uh, New York City is contemplating kind of twenty two thousand layoffs that's almost two thirds of the number of employees added since Bill de Blasio became mayor back in his first term. California is working on a budget with fourteen billion dollars in cuts that would only be restored if the federal government comes up with a new aid package and uh, just to tell you how the states were faring. Before they dove into COVID, uh, NASBO, the National Association of Budget Officers, just this morning reported that state rainy day funds, fortunately, were at a record high of 8.3% of general fund expenditures. That's uh, almost $75 billion. That gave many states, but not all, a considerable cushion, at least to get them through the first year of COVID. So... Here we are, and we have a great panel for you today. Tim Bardick, senior economist at the W.E. Upjohn Institute for Employment Research. Tim has posted a number of really interesting pieces on his blog that we will also post to the archived site. We're also joined by Marsha Van Wagner, vice president and senior credit officer in the public finance group States team at Moody's Investor Service, and Matt Fabian, partner at Municipal Market Analytics. It's a wonderful program. You can find us at the Volcker Alliance and Penn IUR websites. Welcome and thank you for joining us. And with that, let me introduce Susan Wachter from Penn IUR to get us uh, going.
2: Welcome, attendees, and thank you, panelists, for joining us. It's my pleasure to introduce Tim Bartik, who is senior economist at Upjohn Institute. Tim is known nationally for his research on employment, and today he will discuss his forecast for unemployment as some states reopen while others face accelerating COVID-19 spread. And Tim will also discuss the impact of the recession and recovery on state and local revenues, and his recent proposal to target federal assistance so that it is an automatic stabilizers and automatically responds efficiently to job losses. Tim, please go ahead.
3: Thank you, Susan. So the main point I want to make today is that the state and local budget problem due to this pandemic recession is very large, and that if adequate federal aid is not forthcoming, that's going to cause some serious damages to the national economy. My estimate is that for the next three budget years, fiscal years, the state and local budget problem is likely to be about 1.1 trillion in total over those three years. and the peak problem, I expect to occur in uh, fiscal year 2021 when the problem is over 400 billion dollars. and that's over 20 percent of state and local tax revenues. and the reserves that previously mentioned clearly aren't enough to deal with that. Now, if state and local governments decide to deal with this budget problem by cutting spending, the resulting spending cuts will have sufficient multiplier effects on other sectors of the national economy that the 2021 GDP in the U.S. will be reduced by over 3% compared to what it otherwise would be, 3% damaging impact on the national economy. If instead of looking at GDP, you want to look at jobs, the total job impact of the state and local uh, spending cuts would be to reduce the total number of jobs in the national economy by about 5 million jobs. So far, what we've seen is really only about half of this at most. State and local government jobs in the latest report from the Department of Labor were down by about 1.5 million. I would expect that without federal aid being forthcoming, that this would roughly double by 2021 to about a loss of three million direct job losses state-local government. And as I said, there are multiplier effects of that. So that the total job loss, including all sectors of the economy, would be about 5 million jobs. So, okay, so where do these numbers come from? They come from a research literature from estimates of how much unemployment affects state and local budgets, mainly by affecting state and local tax revenue. The research literature suggests that for each one percentage point hike in the unemployment rate, on average, this creates a budget problem for state governments of about 4% of their revenue. So 1% higher unemployment, 4% hit to the budget, mostly due to losses of tax revenue the effects are less for local governments, largely because they rely more on property taxes, which aren't as volatile as sales and income taxes are. And so when I give that figure of $400 billion budget impact in 2021, that budget problem is about two-thirds in state government and about one-third in local government. So there is a considerable local government problem as well. But the the bigger issue is state government. Now, you know, when you make forecasts like this, it's actually, it's, it's not Yogi Berra or Mark Twain. It's an old Danish proverb that uh, forecasts are uncertain, especially about the future. And there's uncertainty in any economic forecast. The unemployment rate forecasts that I'm using are from the U.S. Congressional Budget Office. But obviously there are other forecasts out there and some forecasters are more optimistic than the congressional budget office. So I think that if you believe a more optimistic forecast, the state local budget problem might be uh, one third less than what I'm forecasting. Rather than a budget problem of more than 400 billion in 2021, maybe the budget problem will only be 250 billion. So that's still a huge problem, but it's considerably less. So given this uncertainty, how do we design policy so that the federal aid we provide is sufficient to the scale of the problem, but not excessive? And I think the best way to do that is to design federal aid to state and local governments using automatic stabilizers. So, you know, what I would do is I would... Vary the state, the federal aid monthly. I make monthly payments from the federal government to state and local governments. Each month, based on the national unemployment rate, the federal government would provide another increment of state and local aid based on the budget problem that would be predicted to occur due to that month's unemployment rate. If unemployment goes up, the federal aid would go up right away with a little bit of a lag due to reporting of unemployment, but it would go up very quickly, be very quickly responsive. On the other hand, if, as we hope, the economy does better, the federal aid would automatically phase down. And in turn, I would suggest that federal aid, the total federal aid, would be allocated across states and local areas based on their own individual unemployment rate. We want the most aid to go to the areas that are having the greatest economic problems because they happen to be unlucky enough to specialize in some industry that was more heavily affected by this recession, say travel, entertainment, tourism, that kind of thing. So if we use automatic stabilizers, we can achieve both liberal goals and conservative goals. I mean, the liberal goal here is to make sure that the federal aid is adequate to meet state and local budget needs as the economy um, changes. And the conservative goal is that we want to make sure that federal spending is not excessive, that what we want to do is provide federal aid that offsets a recession that state and local governments did not cause, it was not due to any irresponsibility by state and local governments. On the other hand, we don't want the aid to be excessive and be in excess of what state and local governments really need. And so that's what automatic stabilizers do. And that's why it also should be targeted to each state's unemployment rate as well. Well, let me stop there and uh, make way for the next panelist. Well, thanks very much, Tim. That's a creative
1: and challenging proposal. Uh, I hope Congress is listening. You are listening, by the way, to special briefing on the Volcker Alliance and Penn IUR websites. We're the co-sponsors of these events. We welcome your comments. You can go to the websites after the event to uh, to see this and all of our past uh, special briefings. Next up is Marcia Van Wagner from Moody's Investor Service. Uh, Tim has painted a close relationship between unemployment, and state and local revenues this is not only a job problem and a revenue problem this is also a credit problem for the four trillion dollar municipal market moody's moody's is one of the one of the big credit rating agencies that watches this very closely and moody's has done a lot of work on the economic and fiscal outlook as well as the credit outlook so marcia uh, the floor is yours
4: Thanks, Bill, and thanks, everybody, for tuning into this. Uh, So Tim has painted a picture that's pretty dire. We're not going to disagree with it. We did an estimate earlier in the spring with a more optimistic forecast using basically the same model that Tim's using. And at that time, we were estimating that states alone would have a shortfall of a couple hundred billion dollars just through fiscal 21. So what does that mean? I think first of all, I want to start by saying that states are very very highly rated, as are most local governments. And that is because they have very strong management tools that enable them to navigate difficult economic and fiscal times. But part of those management tools does involve a sort of waterfall of effects onto other entities, particularly for states who are able to pass off their problems on you know substate. Entities, including school districts, local governments, higher education, you know, you name it, those credits will feel more pressure in terms of their ability to make ends meet because states, again, they're able to raise revenues, they're able to make cuts, so it creates a stressful environment, but Not necessarily one where there is a lot of defaults, for example. And I, I know Matt in his talk will probably get a little bit more into the whole default scenario situation. There are some revenue impacts that I think do have some very focused effects on Credits that rely on special tax revenues that are highly sensitive to the economy, in particular convention centers, usually you know there's debt out there that, that draws on taxes from lodging and restaurants and so forth. And in those cases, we think there's going to be a lot of stress. So our credit outlook really, we're looking at what choices are governments making. We are trying to look through the cycle in terms of how we're placing our ratings. Where will these governments come out at the end of the cycle? And there's four main factors that affect that, not exclusive to these factors, but revenue volatility is one. I think Tim already mentions that states have a lot more revenue volatility than local governments do, but they also have more control over their revenues. What is the amount of reserves? There's an average, very high number of reserves, but that is not distributed evenly across the states. Some states have a lot of reserves. Some states don't. How flexible is the government's ability to use the tools at its disposal? And that includes just not only sort of constitutional provisions and so forth, but have they hemmed themselves in with a lot of debt or pension liability? And then how are they going to end up at the end of this in terms of their outstanding leverage? If there is a lot of borrowing, we do expect to see deficit spending, deficit borrowing during this period. But how that affects credit is going to really depend on how they look relative to others in their rating categories. If there's more federal aid, and there's a lot of uncertainty around that, whether there will be what is the size of it, we have to look at what choices our government our government's making around that? Is it just a cut now or cut later choice? We are seeing some states waiting to make spending decisions to see if there's more federal aid, which puts off any particular, you know, any cuts that they might have to make, and that could make those cuts more severe in the future. Is there going to be a fiscal cliff at some point, either now or later? The sort of uh, management of these uncertainties is going to be an important factor in how states manage their way through this. And we do think that this kind of postponement of taking action is risky because of just the level of uncertainty and, you know, the sort of potentially more compressed period over which changes might have to be made if federal money doesn't materialize the way people might be expecting it to. You know, and another thing we're looking at, of course, is there's going to be political resistance to balancing measures. How do do governments preserve their fiscal integrity if there's a lot of resistance to tax increases and there's a lot of resistance to spending cuts? Right now, I think there's a lot of politics around spending cuts in terms of what social risks might be deepened by those reductions. So that may push states toward The balance of their efforts might be pushed more toward kind of taking the deficit borrowing, creating structural imbalances to try and navigate around the politics of of making recurring changes that people don't like very much. And I think a final issue is around the fixed cost issue. Yet debt is likely to rise. And pension costs are also going to increase for states that have pension burdens. You know, we have a lot of volatility in the asset market. Some states are very highly exposed to; they have a lot of pension assets, and if those fall, they're going to have to replace them, and that leaves a long tail of spending pressures after the recession is over. So that's a kind of you know pre-existing condition, as it were,
2: f- for some states.
4: I guess I'll just kind of leave it there and maybe we can get to more specifics in the Q&A section.
2: Thank you, Marcia, for that quick landscape of the ratings today and how you're envisioning shifting ratings over time as the economy itself evolves, particularly in an uncertain time. This watch that's out there is obviously extremely important. And Matt Fabian is also watching carefully, the municipal market, and specifically watches early defaults. Uh, We've had Matt Fabian on before. We're pleased to have you again. Matt is a partner in municipal market analytics. Matt, do you tell us, are you seeing early defaults? And when we do see defaults, what entities are likely to be the canary in the mine?
5: Thanks, Susan. Thanks to the Volcker Alliance for having me back on. Again, it's hard to believe you actually wanted to hear more of me and the data, but here it goes anyway. So, in answering your question, Susan, there have been an increase in defaults in the municipal bond market in general, but not uh, so far the kinds of governments and general governments that we worry about for the most part from a policy perspective. So the data through the end of last week, uh, 33 municipal borrowers had a disclosed a payment default this year. And that's roughly, it's well ahead of the last few years of a default pace. And we're, we are on track depending on 33. So that produces maybe a 70 to 75 year end estimate. If it continues at this pace, maybe a little bit higher, that's the highest it's been since 2012. Now, just in contrast, right, when in 2009, 2010, you know, we had about 150 payment defaults a year. We're not Projecting at this point back to back to that level, but we are having a a rate of default that is similar or at least comparable for the first time. And the kinds of credits again that are defaulting are your retirement projects, your industrial development bonds, and charter schools, you know, land speculation transactions, all high yield oriented stuff, not general governments. And the municipal default rate in general is still very low. If you include Puerto Rico, so all of the bonds. That the Puerto Rico has issued and are currently in default. That's about 1.4 percent of the outstanding par of the municipal bond market, the 3.8 trillion. If you exclude Puerto Rico, it gets down to about 0.3 percent of outstanding par. So, so there is. While we expect defaults will increase and including among governments, the default rate is still very, very low. Now we also look at bonds getting into trouble for all kinds of reasons, covenant violations or serious trouble that they disclosed to Emma and things like that. And there we are seeing an increase in governments. So we've had about 100, actually 101 governments enter our database this year. And that's again, well ahead of any prior year since I think 2014, 2013. There are about a, about a dozen of those are general governments, so we are beginning to see some impacts, and the impact there is it's the sales tax, it's lodging tax, dependent financings, you know where there's a hotel or a, a a lodging tax that just isn't isn't providing enough grease to pay debt service, and they're having to trigger alternative security lines. So we'll see after July first, we expect a lot of defaults, high yield defaults again. On July 1st, we'll see how the market handles that. There's, there are about a dozen, 10 to 12 issuers that have already forecast a payment default uh, on July 1. After that, we expect to see a lot more impairments, so covenant violations and similar in the third quarter by hospitals and universities that have, you know, are missing financial covenants in the second quarter now. And then by year end and into next year, we'll start to see more general governments getting into the mix, you know, and that's because one, their disclosure is. Late and sloppy, so it's hard, you know, to sort of. I mean, there's trouble now, obviously, but until they actually get around to disclosing trouble, that's going to be coming a bunch later. And governments have been able to borrow to this point. They've been able to use private capital from banks. You know, eventually they will begin to, you know, they will begin to borrow from the regular municipal capital market. That's like the, you know, the regular muni bond market. Then, you know, maybe they'll use the Fed program uh, too. We can talk about that in a in a minute. That deficit borrowing is critical to helping them stave off things getting worse in the near term. An injection of federal aid would be much appreciated there. Some kind of economic rebound also appreciated. But absent those things, I think it becomes almost unavoidable that we will see general governments defaulting. And for our sector, for the muni bond market in general, meaning like the cost of capital borrowing for all governments, it doesn't take 100 local governments defaulting for capital costs to rise generally. It only takes a handful, four, five, six, in the headlines that begin to spark fear. We are a very individual investor-based market. We're a very retail, ultimately targeted market. So if investors begin to lose confidence because of headlines, because you have half a dozen governments defaulting or seriously considering defaulting, then that could raise the cost of capital for everyone. So, you know, we'll see. But if you go sector by sector across the municipal market looking at universities sales tax financings and similar you just find so much uncertainty sector to sector that i think it's just naive to assume that we won't have a fairly material increase in defaults where we are after that happens i mean i guess i guess we'll see to this point things are pretty orderly the market has held together really extremely well in the in the second quarter here we are headed with a lot of confidence into the third quarter that's going to be tested in the next couple of weeks but we'll see. So with that, I will relent. Thanks a lot for hearing me talk.
1: Thanks, Matt, for that uh, sobering forecast. You're listening to special briefing from uh, Volcker Alliance and the Penn Institute for Urban Research. You can listen to this, of course, and to all of our past special briefings on both the Volcker Alliance and IUR websites. Thank you very much for joining us. And I'm going to turn it back to, to Susan Walker, my co-host from Penn IUR, to uh, start the Q&A period. Susan.
2: Yes. Thank you, Bill. Tim, you spoke of a decline of employment, a doubling of unemployment state and locals from one and a half million so far to three million. I'm not sure if you meant by the end of 2020 or sometime in 2021. I'd like you to clarify that. And an additional two million overall through a multiplier effect for five million. Uh, So I'd like you to clarify the timing. And then I'd also like to turn to... Matt and Marcia on the timing. If the federal assistance assistance is not forthcoming, additional federal assistance in July, is there a fiscal cliff in the future? Is there a point at which the degree of adversity hits quickly, or is this a slowly evolving hit over time? Tim, why don't we start with you?
3: Well, I guess the forecast I was doing was the average for fiscal year 2021 using the federal fiscal year, which is October 1st to September 30th, I actually could generate a quarter by quarter forecast based on the CBO thing. The thing I would say about the quarter by quarter forecast, there's so many uncertainties here. I mean, are we going to have a second wave or there are huge numbers of uncertainties here. So talking about exactly what the timing is, you can produce a timing based on either CBO's forecast or someone else's, but if there's a huge second wave that occurs in the late fall and winter, the timing is going to be different than if that doesn't occur. So
2: well, that's useful. So something we could ass- we could just for ex- thought experiment assume that federal aid is not forthcoming. And I guess when will we know, one way or the other, on that is that August 7th when Congress goes on its break or before that, and what will be the consequences? Well, what do we yeah, know?
3: Yeah, I guess what my response would be that that's a political thing. At some point, it will become clear to people, you know, as you get close to the election, you have to assume Congress is not going to adopt a fiscal aid package on October 31st. And realistically, at some point, I would think in August, it would become apparent that such a fiscal aid package is very unlikely. And I think at that point, states will have to decide. So far, some states seem to have been, as Marsha mentioned, seem to have been kind of low-balling the problem and hoping that federal aid will be forthcoming. There will have to be different decisions made at some point in August if, in fact, it becomes clear the aid is not forthcoming.
2: So, Marsha, what are the consequences of the fact states have been low-balling and what if the federal aid is not forthcoming? Well, it depends how long they
4: continue for. So if you have to, let's take the state of New York, for example, which has eight or nine billion dollars in its budget of cuts, which it hasn't really made yet because it's waiting for federal aid. Unusually, New York State's fiscal year starts April 1st. So they're already almost a quarter way through the fiscal year. So the longer they put off making those cuts, the more kind of disruptive and extreme they might be if they have to make them. They're kind of doing this calculation that they think, well, if they get the federal aid, they won't have to be as damaging. A lot of what they spend money on is school aid and the next big payment of school aid from the cash perspective of the state is not until later in the fall. So they think they've kind of got some time, but the school districts don't necessarily know what they're gonna be facing during the school year in terms of funding. So there could be a lot of very disruptive cuts. And if the state's unable to make those reductions, they might really then just flip to deficit borrowing and that will kind of put them in a higher debt situation that's going to have an impact on their on their credit profile. So it's a gamble. People don't want to make damaging cuts if they don't have to, but at the same time, what is the other alternative? It's a serious dilemma that states are in as long as the decision about federal aid is just up in the air. And let me also say on the timing problem. I mean, we have a near-term problem at the end of July when these additional unemployment insurance checks uh, the additional $600 a week, because that's helped support sales tax in the states and local governments that collect sales tax. And that is something that, you know, I think the revenue impacts of that could be felt pretty
2: quickly. So the combination, Marcia, of the near-term $600 ending in July and the perhaps lack of consensus on additional assistance, do you see that in the fall that we will have emergency legislative sessions? And potentially severe budget cuts in many states?
4: Well, yeah. I mean, I don't know if in the fall, but some of them are going to be this summer. I think that that's up in the air, but there's definitely going to be special sessions and emergency sessions. In some cases, there are more stronger executive powers. Some states are able to make budget cuts without convening the legislature. So those might just happen without any additional political input from from legislators.
1: Let me ask a question, a related question for uh, all the panelists. Matt talked about uh, deficit borrowing. Marsha talked about deficit borrowing. What are the consequences of this? Yes, we preserve services. On the other hand, we're pushing out liabilities, 3, 5, 10, 20, 30 years. Uh, New York State has I, I think 11 billion dollars in borrowing built into its budget uh, already short term with the option to, to extend it for the long term. Illinois has already borrowed from the Federal Reserve uh, as well as selling a general obligation uh, bond. New York City is is seeking authorization from the legislature to borrow, as we know from our, our research, the Volker Alliance, states have balanced budget requirements 49 of them do anyway but uh, also have all kinds of workarounds to allow them to accumulate debt uh, not the least of which is unemployment trust fund borrowing and pension obligations so what are the long-term consequences for budgets for employment how far can you push it down the road
4: i think it's really contextual because it depends on the state's existing leverage position so some states are going to have more room to borrow than others i can't really make a blanket statement about what the impact of deficit borrowing will be i mean you talk about new york 11 billion is a very big number they actually only have four and a half billion in their budget for this year to do cash flow borrowing which is what they could flip over into long-term debt if they wanted to some states have very high debt and would have a greater impact on their future flexibility if they issue deficit bonds now. So I, it's, I'd like to be able to, you know, answer your question with something more general statement, but it, it really is, it really depends.
2: Well, Marcia, can you be more specific and tell us about what states are likely to up the reserves and rainy day funds before others, which ones are better prepared? Well, I can talk about the general
4: preparedness of states. I think that we looked at this, I think we put out a report about a year ago. So this is a sort of a baseline preparedness situation. And we took into account four factors, revenue volatility, reserve levels, flexibility to adjust spending and revenues. And I'm missing one, but those are generally the factors we took into account. And the weakest states on that measure were Illinois and New Jersey, because both of them have very high unfunded pension liabilities, low reserves. And just kind of weak flexibility in terms of addressing their budgetary problems. Almost half the states scored, for our perspective, kind of on the stronger side of things because they may have a combination of maybe moderate liabilities. They have strong reserves. They have a lot of budgetary flexibility, low debt and pensions or moderate pensions. It's true that on the average, there is a lot of reserves out there. but It is also the case that, as I said earlier, those reserves aren't distributed very equally. You have the aggregate numbers are dominated by like Texas and Alaska that have a lot of measured reserves. And you have other states that just don't have very much in the way of at least formal rainy day funds and easily accessible funds. So half the states maybe could maybe cover one year of, of revenue loss that's equivalent to their, you know, historically largest percentage revenue decline. So it kind of it kind of splits down the middle that way.
2: Let me turn back to Tim on this. Tim, you gave us your broad perspective on automatic stabilizing as a way to go and tracing and tracking this with unemployment uh, aggregate and by state. Do you have a, a sense of on average, if unemployment, let's say, follows the CBO estimate, what the rescue package would need to be on the total rescue package that would then be distributed through an automatic stabilizer? Have you taken that step?
3: Well, yeah, I've looked at that. I mean, I guess, as I said, the for the next three fiscal years, the total budget need is about $1.1 trillion, And As we're discussing here, you know what can states do about it? They can do a little bit of borrowing, they can maneuver, but given the size of the problem, I think a better solution is federal aid. Now, does the federal aid need to be 100% of that 1.1 trillion need? No, I don't think it does, because state and local governments do have reserves, and they should have reserves to deal with more modest increases in unemployment. And, you know, I think we should expect that. I mean, there should be a partnership here between the federal and state and local governments. But here we have a massive recession where unemployment has skyrocketed. Under the CBO forecast, it stays pretty high through the end of 2021. And really, I don't think given the size and depth of this recession that it's reasonable to expect that state and local governments can pay the majority of that cost. They can maybe pay a minority. I mean, so you could, I don't know if there's an exact formula, but certainly I think the federal, ideally the federal aid would be a substantial share of that 1.1 trillion, a majority of that.
2: Uh, titrating that by year. So for 2021, what would
3: you say? Would that be for well, yeah. It's over $400 billion, so I would hope that federal aid for 2021 would be at least $300 billion. That, that would be my view. And then state and local governments have to deal with some of this through reserves or maybe through implicit borrowing and other sources. So I don't think necessarily if the unemployment rate goes up by 1% or 2%, that creates a problem that we would hope that areas can plan for. If it goes up by 10%, not so much.
2: Is that consistent? That 100 billion local expenditure, Marsha, with your estimates of revenue losses and reserving, would that, from your perspective, be around the range of assistance that's needed to prevent borrowing for operating expenses? Well, we haven't,
4: you know, specifically estimated that. You know, tried to answer that question. I think that our understanding of the relationship between Unemployment and revenue loss is consistent with what Tim says. You know, if we look historically, after the last recession, federal aid covered about maybe 40% of state budget gaps. And I think it was widely agreed upon that state and local government budget cuts that were necessary to address a lot of the remaining budget gap were part of an impediment to the nation's recovery and help prolong that recovery. So more federal aid is going to reduce that impact.
1: Let me ask a, a related question, and maybe, Tim, put your uh, labor economist hat on. The unemployment trust fund system, is it's state by state with federal supervision. Is the system capable of supporting the, the kind of long-term unemployment or slow recovery that everybody seems to be forecasting right now, how will borrowing from the federal government help? In the last recession, states borrowed about $200 billion, 150 of that from the federal government and the rest from the market and internal sources. And that was paid back very often through increases in taxes on employers. Do we need to rethink the unemployment system?
3: Yes. I think one thing that this whole crisis has revealed is we have serious problems with our social safety net, our unemployment system, the fact that we had to jury-rig this special pandemic unemployment assistance is indicative of that. The fact that a lot of the systems, the computer systems are inadequate is an evidence of that. We don't cover enough people. I mean, too few people unemployed get assistance, and then the way we're currently doing it, I mean you know, in my view, we're going to have a problem because in addition, there is going to be massive borrowing from the federal government to support unemployment benefits. Under the way in which the system is supposed to work, that will result in large increase in employer taxes. And uh, that's not really good for job growth in the economy. And it doesn't really make sense. I mean, it's one thing to have a uh, system under which you tax employers in normal times because you don't want to subsidize them laying off workers. It's another thing when there's a massive recession that's beyond any employer's control to penalize employers in the aggregate or or specifically for this. So we need to rethink the whole system. I think there have been actually one of my colleagues at the Upton Institute suggested we should just the federal government should just take over the unemployment insurance system. The current system needs really serious reform. Can you see that happening anytime soon? Well, I mean, you know, such gridlock in Washington, I mean, it's hard to be optimistic. So I guess it depends on uh, what happens in the election, what people call for and what people see. But clearly, the unemployment system did not respond adequately in many states. And the jury rigs we did with the federal government helped some now those are phasing out we need to talk about the future i mean how do we what kind of payments the $600 payment per week extra was done because we didn't know how to do a 100% replacement with the computer systems uh, it was just a jury rig maybe not the ideal way to do it but it's what we could do in the short run in the long run we need to reform the whole system it's not Uh, It's not adequately working, and it needs some major reforms in terms of taxable wage bases, benefit levels, eligibility, et cetera. And you can argue over who should do it exactly, but the current structure is not working. I think the the federal government will need to be heavily involved in reforming it, and hopefully we can have more problem solving in Washington and less gridlock.
2: That sounds like a long-run agenda, not a short-run In the short run, by the short run and intermediate run, the coming year, let me turn to to you, Matt. Do you see this playing out as potentially more Puerto Ricos? And is there steps that can be done now that, from your perspective, need to be done now to prevent that? Or should we just let that evolve and deal with the crises when they come?
5: Puerto Rico was, I mean, the reason that the muni bond market defaults away from Puerto Rico is just 0.3% is because Puerto Rico is so unique there's is, there is virtually no chance of states and large cities following puerto Rico's path it is Puerto Rico had decades of deficit borrowing Puerto Rico's projected debt service schedule was really just a borrowing schedule so That was decades in the making where the Commonwealth is now. Tragically, no other state and major city is close to what Puerto Rico had been doing. And much more likely, I mean, remember, if you look back to the statistics in the Great Depression, right, we had 5,000 governments defaulted, about a third local governments, about a third school districts, and a third development districts. And of those, so we we had 5,000 payment defaults in the 20 years surrounding the Great Depression. But the net loss to bondholders was 0.5%. Of outstanding par. So the vast majority of defaults were really just payment suspensions. And that's probably what we would see here too. You know, we're talking more about temporary payment misses, disruptions to investor cash flow, which is sort of what investors should be prepared for anyway. That is what municipal bond principal and interest is subordinate to the health, safety, and welfare of these local governments. So that's just going to happen Probably, but most of them, I, I don't see anybody getting into a protracted, years-long debt reclamation effort like is happening in Puerto Rico.
2: So, just to follow that up on that, do you see in this process of additional borrowing but no tremendous stress that states and localities will take advantage of the Fed's uh, MLF before its scheduled December closure? Will that be part of the way out of this of the situation,
3: Matt?
5: you know, the Fed program has been expended, extended to to the end of the year, and it could well be extended again and continue to be expanded to other governments. It's intended as a backup to the market. So the market has not broken, so doesn't need a backup to this point. Issuers have been accessing a ton of capital, both liquidity, which means money just in case, and uh, deficit borrowing, which is money that they actually need, through direct bank loans, there's been a huge surge in, in a bank loan activity. And then also probably after 7-1, we'll begin to see governments beginning to borrow more formally for a deficit borrowing through the, the traditional market. Now, if investors begin to pull cash out again, like they did in March, because you know, they want cash, or if you have a few dozen states and cities decide that they need $5 billion of deficit borrowing right away, then the private market is going to come under pressure, and then the Fed program could be utilized. Uh, I mean, that's really what it's there for, to provide sort of situationally independent borrowing capacity for for these governments. It's a great backstop for lenders, for other lenders, who know that if everything else breaks down, these eligible issuers can still raise capital. I mean, that's what it's there for. But we're not at the point where issuers would need to use that yet.
1: And this is fairly short-term lending. It's only up to three years,
5: right? That's right. It's only up to three years, and that's it's intended to be a bridge to, in theory, brighter, happier times a couple of years from now. If that's not the case and, say, the pandemic... Say we're having—you're still doing calls a year from now about the impacts of the pandemic because it's still with us and you know activity is still shuttered and similar. Then at some point, states and eligible issuers or or whoever could just bond out. They could take. They could use the private market to you know more permanently finance those deficits. And we are as a loyal member of the Volcker Alliance's Truth and State Budgeting Task Force here. We have at MMA and and me in particular, almost a sort of puritanical view on deficit borrowing and gimmicks and and the like. And we in general think they're bad, whether it's a good time in the business cycle or a bad time in the business cycle. But now us being outside of the traditional business cycle, I'm much more tolerant of excessive, what what would normally be seen as excessive deficit borrowing, because it is better to Susan's earlier point and and, uh, to Marcia's point, that it's, you know, that we don't downstream a lot of pain to locals and make things potentially worse and that governments in effect who are under you know despite the current conditions who are extremely solvent in the long term take some of that burden on their own backs and you know use it through deficit borrowing and try to keep their local economies running.
2: Marsha, what is your view on that? Will you take a longer run view on current borrowing than yeah, in the I mean I
4: think that- we're certainly expecting to see deficit borrowing as part of a package of solutions that governments are going to enter into and i think as i you know tried to express earlier in my comments our rating per se are there's an ordinal element to them i think you know if we see it's a matter of degree it's a matter of comparability with other with other states so you know do we if if some entity is what we, in, in our view, relying excessively on deficit borrowing and it boxes them in in a future way that we think is going to be damaging to their credit, then, you know, we're going to not like that. But we don't have a, a sort of blanket view that in this circumstance, deficit borrowing is ipso facto a bad
1: thing. I want to Who's ask it? a question, if, if I may, about, about Medicaid. That's been the, the, the fastest growing state expenditure, it's a state federal program, but Medicaid Medicaid expenditures have been growing about three percent a year in real terms since the nineteen seventies. If we have protracted high unemployment, it's almost certainly to put an extra burden on on Medicaid. How are the states going to cope with this? And how is the federal government going to cope with this? Maybe start with Tim and and work our way work our way through the panel.
3: That's included in the estimates I'm doing. It's not, I mean, the major problem is the loss of revenue. Like mean, 90% of the problem is the loss of revenue due to, due to the economy. But about 10% of it is spending and a lot of it is spending needs going up. And a lot of that has to do with Medicaid and other healthcare needs going up when unemployment is high. Now, of course, we also have healthcare spending going up because of Dealing with the pandemic, so that's another source of this this very large budget problem, which can I just circle back to one thing that previous I, I one thing I want to emphasize again when we talk about borrowing is solving this problem. if the problem over the next three years is one point one trillion, I don't think that maneuvering and borrowing is going to be the best way of dealing with this. I really think the federal aid is is needed, so I just want to yeah, mention may expand upon that. Why? Well, I can ask these people who are familiar with, the, who work with these markets all the time, what would happen if states went out and started trying to borrow $1.1 trillion over the next three years? Is that even feasible or make any, make any sense? <laughs>
4: Good yeah, well, question
2: to your fellow panelists.
4: Go ahead, Marcia. Yeah, that's sort of an extreme view of the deficit borrowing that states would rely solely on deficit borrowing to close their budget gaps. I think that What we see states do over previous dire circumstances is a mix, you know, a mix of they have a lot of tools. They can find revenue, not necessarily broad-based taxes, but there's other ways to get revenue. They can sweep funds from other entities. They can cut spending for lower levels of government. They can cut their own spending and they will do all of those things. And then in addition, if they need to they might deficit borrow. So I think that the prospect of a trillion dollars in deficit borrowing coming down the pike is is
2: very slim. Matt, what do you think?
5: Yeah, no, I agree with that. Yeah, no, I agree. I don't see a scenario where they would need uh, I don't see a scenario where they would need a trillion dollars in one year. And I agree 100% with everything that Marcia said. But the issue is can the can the capital market deliver a few hundred billion dollars of deficit financing. And I think that that's a resounding yes. Uh, issuers, state and local governments are taking a machete to their infrastructure borrowing plans right now. So where normally the municipal market would produce about $400 billion of loans a year, going forward, the amount of that that is new money projects, say $250 billion, is going to be cut sharply. So into that absence could come deficit financing, along with a rebound of a bank direct lending, and maybe the Fed program too. So the three sources together have ample capacity to lend if if the government decide that they need that. But so, yeah, so but I also agree of, with Tim's point. Federal aid would be better. So let me turn
2: this back directly to Tim. Tim, what do you think of the combination of cutting cutting borrowing for infrastructure and borrowing for deficits instead, and cutting spending? 1.1 trillion.
3: Would that be a solution? Well, I mean, I mean, what they're saying is, and the reality is, state and local governments will figure out some way of dealing with this, and they'll do some borrowing, they'll do some revenue things, and they'll do some spending cuts. My point is simply that the federal government is the entity that has the capacity to readily deficit spend, that would be a better solution in terms of the effects on the economy because. To the extent to which state local governments say, well, we can do a couple hundred billion of deficit borrowing, but the rest we need to either raise revenue or cut spending, that's going to have adverse effects in the economy. That was the point I made at the beginning, that when you look at the size of the budget problem, absent a significant program of federal aid that makes up a large part of that, you are going to see state local governments taking budget actions that will damage the national economy and national recovery by a lot up to 5 million jobs. I mean, maybe it's not gonna be five, maybe the only damage is the recovery by 3 million jobs. Maybe it won't hurt GDP by 3%, maybe it's only 2%. Those are still very large numbers, very large economic harms.
2: Well, thank you, Tim. And thank you also, Marcia and Matt. We're coming to the end of the hour. Let me thank today's panelists who are simply superb. And we really appreciate your being with us.
0: You've been listening to Special Briefing, brought to you by the Volcker Alliance and the University of Pennsylvania Institute for Urban Research. Every month, we bring you the latest intelligence, strategies, and trends affecting state and local governments' finances in the wake of COVID 19 and how they're impacted by Washington's unprecedented response. Visit the Volcker Alliance and Penn IUR websites to learn more, stay up to date, and dive deeper into these critical issues. And be sure to subscribe here or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts so that you'll never miss an insight.